All right, well, we are in somewhat of a lengthy series, just slowly working our way through Mark's gospel. And uh, we find ourselves this morning in Mark's gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, verses 1 through 20, and what might seem to many of us to be something of a strange text. Um, But here we are, we're finding ourselves in Mark 5, 1 through 20. And uh, whenever you get there, if you just want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we stand to show respect and honor to God's word as we hear it read. We want to hear these words as if the risen Lord Jesus is here speaking them to us himself standing in this pulpit this morning because these words come to us with that very same authority. And so we want to listen with reverence. We want to listen with joy to the words of our risen King. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran And fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man and the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we're coming into this text 
from a text last week that seems like it's so relevant to our present context and circumstances and lives. And we come to this text, and in many ways it seems far removed from our regular experiences. And so it can be hard to know what to do with a text like this, but we trust this morning that your word does not go forth in a manner that is void or without purpose. We trust that your word is powerful, that it accomplishes what you send it forward to accomplish. And so to that end, would you open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts this morning to receive what you have for us from this text. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ, our Lord, we ask these things. Amen. You can be seated. C.S. Lewis once wrote that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis, as he usually was, was right. Personally, I grew up in the Pentecostal tradition of the Christian faith, as some of you know, and uh, there are many things that I've come to appreciate and even miss about that particular tradition. It's emphasis on, on the need for the Holy Spirit. It's emphasis on, on personal holiness. It's emphasis on prayer and spiritual disciplines. And I appreciate those emphases and, and more, but there are also things I can look back on now with, with something of a critical eye, and one of them being that sometimes there are some Pentecostals that can show an unhealthy measure of interest in the demonic and in spiritual warfare, and that's not true of everyone, mind you, but I can recall a few individuals in our church growing up or seeing them at conferences that I would attend who would have this kind of unhealthy obsession with demons. It seemed like there was maybe a demon under every rock for these kinds of folks. And anytime there was, there was suffering or sin or strange occurrences, it was sure to be attributed to the demonic. And they were Lewis's magician, so to speak. And I think the devils were delighted in their obsession. But then if, if we're frank, if we're honest, the majority of us, perhaps all of us, we're not necessarily in danger of that side of the extreme. Uh, after all, we live in, in, in what philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age. This is an age of rationality. This is a, 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 an age of naturalistic explanations. This is an age of what many are calling disenchantment. An age which has been disenchanted. An age in which, as James K.A. Smith puts it, diseases are not demonic, mental illnesses are no longer possession, the body is no longer ensouled. Instead, these occurrences that we find in our text this morning and, and others like them, and everything seems to have merely materialistic, naturalistic explanations. And what's more is that this is not just true of 
you know, so-called secular humanists or atheists or the rising nuns, uh, nuns not being like Catholic nuns, but nuns being this growing group of people in the U.S. who have no religious affiliation. This doesn't just happen and occur amongst those specific demographics of people. We need to reckon with the reality that we in the church have absorbed many of these kinds of cultural shifts that were more influenced by a naturalist worldview than we'd like to admit. And, and if we were to put ourselves on Lewis's, uh, in one of Lewis's categories of magicians or materialists, we're much more likely to fall into the side of the materialist. And so we come to texts like this, and they just seem so weird and so strange to us. And yet, what we need is a a hefty dose of biblical balance, and Mark 5, 1 through 20 is a good place to find it. Because what we find here is the much-needed reminder that we don't actually live in a disenchanted world, no matter how disenchanted we may be. We live in a world, in a cosmos, wherein there are things that we cannot see. There are evil things lurking in the shadows. There are evil spirits who intend to deceive and destroy us. God and his people have a real enemy named Satan, and he was an exceptionally powerful angel that God created who fell from his original innocence and rebelled against God, and he took a horde of other angels down with him, and now we have this exceptionally powerful enemy and his demonic horde along with him, all of whom are opposed to us and want to destroy us as divine image bearers. And this can all be very disconcerting and and disorienting, but here's the good news of this passage is that while there is definitely evil in this world that opposes us and wants to oppress us as God's beloved image bearers, We have a divine conqueror who has authority over evil and who has come to deliver those oppressed by it. And so we're going to explore this text this morning, looking at a demonic captivity, a delivering conqueror, and a declarative commission. First, a a demonic captivity. So, So we find Jesus here arriving at the other side of the Sea of Galilee, If we look back at Mark chapter 4, we remember that he was preaching his parables there in Capernaum, and then he was in the boat, and his disciples joined them, and they crossed to the other side of the lake there, and on the way, he stilled the storm, and now that he and his disciples are safely on the other side, the action does not stop. They arrive in in, uh, the country, or maybe it would be better translated as the region of the Gerasenes. Now, there's some textual variances here. And scholars are not, not quite sure what to make of this since Gerasa was too far from the Sea of Galilee uh, for this to even be the possible setting for the story. But again, it doesn't say that it took place in Gerasa. Uh, it, it says that it took place in the region of the Gerasenes, meaning this kind of general territory of the Decapolis on the other side of the lake. And this was a largely Gentile region, which you could probably tell by the presence of pigs in this story. But now upon their arrival, Jesus is immediately confronted by a demoniac man. Notice Mark's use of his favorite word here, immediately. He uses that word again and again. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man has an unclean spirit. 
And from here, Mark is going to give us something of a contrast between the power of demons versus the power of Jesus as the Son of God. And spoilers, no contest, but, but still, he does show us how there is this real substantive power from these demonic foes here, and this power is at work here in this man. Demons are powerful. Mark shows us this here. Mark shows us that this man had this, uh, her, um, this just amazing supernatural strength, this this amazing strength here in verses 3 and 4, he says that he lived among the tombs, and, and we don't know why he lived among the tombs. Um, you know, perhaps he had a loved one that died there, and so he just camped out there. Maybe, maybe um, he felt as good as dead himself. We have no idea why he dwelled among the tombs, but he lived among these tombs here, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. His neighbors had bound him with shackles and chains because of his madness. But he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So you see here that this this presence of this unclean spirit led this man to have a kind of supernatural strength. A strength beyond what any of the town could overcome. But then... Not only was the unclean spirit more powerful than the townsfolk, it was more powerful than this man. This man had been overcome by this this demonic power. He had lost his mind. He lived there among the tombs. Verse 5 says, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Luke gives the additional detail that he was naked and decently exposed. He was overcome by this demonic power power and your your heart just goes out to this man. He has tragically lost all control of himself. He is in utter torment, miserable beyond what he can bear, and your heart just breaks for this man. He's in such a state of misery. And now, you know, the part of the difficulty, I can just maybe go off on a little rabbit trail here. Part of the difficulty when we come to a passage like this in our day and age is that we Westerners can tend to be pretty skeptical about events and episodes such as this. You know, in our our naturalistic, disenchanted age, we can have the tendency to try to explain passages like this and everything in merely naturalistic terms with, you know, sociological, psychological, physiological causes alone. And, And so we might come to a passage like this and we might say, you know, there's no way that this man was possessed by a demon. Instead, he probably had a mental illness, and those present just interpreted it as a spiritual issue, a demonic spirit, because of their pre-modern and primitive culture, naturalistic explanations. And if that's you here today, I, I want to push back. I want you to take time to consider this. I want you to consider that you have a very limited view of life in the world. Again, if you think that everything can be explained by naturalistic causes, you're missing an important insight, and that is that there are also spiritual causes to events in this world. And if you miss that, you're missing something of the complexity and multidimensional nature of the cosmos. Yes, there are often natural causes to things. There are sociological factors and physiological factors and psychological factors at work, and these must be taken into account and into consideration as well as 
matters of spirit. And the Bible accounts for this kind of complexity that we meet with in the world, doesn't it? We've already seen in Mark Jesus deal with you know, some physiological matters of illness. In other parts of Scripture, we see these, these other factors considered, psychological factors considered. We see sociological factors considered and dealt with. Christianity has the complexity of this life in the world in full view, considering all of these different factors, not leaving anyone out. And Tim Keller, um, he cites Richard Baxter as a good example of this. Uh, Baxter was an old Puritan pastor that wrote a book on depression. And when he undertook to to try to explain the cause of depression, Baxter had a very well-developed and complex view of the world and of life. And, And so he says in his book, when considering depression and the causes of it, he says that, you know, maybe sometimes depression is caused by physiological factors. And in that case, you might need food or sleep or medical attention. But then he says that there also might be psychological factors. And, and in that case, a depressed person might need encouragement and friendship or exercise or to just get off social media for a little while. Or maybe, he says, depression might be a moral issue at times. A person might be depressed because they're living in a state of unrepentance and sin and, and not confessing it to the Lord and, and turning away from their sin and experiencing the joy of forgiveness. And this conviction of the Holy Spirit is weighing heavily, and there's a deep sadness there. And so what that person needs to do is repent of their sin and confess it. Or, he says, it might be a spiritual issue and might be the cause of a demonic scheme to hurt this person and cause them distress. Or or Baxter says it could be a combination of two or more of those things. Perhaps demons are causing or exploiting a physiological issue, or perhaps there are demons aggravating a moral issue. And and you see how he's having this, this, he's viewing life in the world in terms of the complexity that it deserves. He's, He's being biblical. And likewise, we should be biblical regarding these kinds of matters. We shouldn't be naive When spiritual issues like this come up, seeking to explain away with naturalistic explanations, we should have the full complexity of the created order in view. And with that, the scriptures show us there is indeed demonic and satanic activity going on in this world. And sometimes that takes the shape of what the Bible calls demonization. Demonization. And that's actually a more literal translation of what is translated here as demon possession in the ESV. Uh, The scriptures don't actually use that phrase. Uh, The scriptures uh, actually just use the word, it would be better translated as demonization. And demonization is this occurrence wherein a person is indwelled by a demon or multiple demons to the point where these demons can overtake a person's personality and exercise some measure of control over this person who is demonized. They take a person completely captive and control their thoughts, their words, their behavior, their actions. And that is obviously what is taking place with this man here. But then, you know, that doesn't mean that this demonic captivity that we're talking about here is only reserved for these extreme kinds of cases of this demonization like this man here. In fact, the Bible tells us that all of humanity, apart from Christ, is held captive by Satan 
and his demonic mafia. There is a cosmic battle going on. This is, this is the way that scriptures depict life in the cosmos. There is this cosmic battle going on between good and evil, between God and Satan and his demonic horde. And we human beings have been taken as captives in this fight ever since Genesis 3. We have been given over to the dominion and captivity of Satan apart from Christ. We are imprisoned by satanic and demonic influences. And, And that may seem kind of extreme to you, but consider what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's saying behind every unbelieving heart is satanic oppression, is demonic oppression and captivity. Prior to conversion, we are all blind to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his grace and glory because of Satan's influence and Satan's inhibitions. And not only that, but think of Ephesians 2, 1-2. There, Paul says that apart from Christ's salvation, we are all dead in trespasses and sins, following Satan and under his evil influence. That's not to say that everyone apart from Christ is entirely demonized, like this man here, but everyone apart from Christ is demonically deceived and distorted. And in extreme cases, demonization happens and a person becomes entirely dominated. And that brings up a question regarding whether or not people can still be demonized today. Because there are people in the church today that would teach that that cannot happen today any longer. I think you'll be very hard-pressed to make that case biblically. If you do believe that, um, it, there's just no case to be made there. Um, you know, and, and then as a secondary, uh, app, just I guess, arguments, experience is not our final authority. Scripture is our final authority, but I have seen it. I have seen it. I've witnessed it. Many missionaries in the field today report that they run into this kind of thing often. For some reason, we don't seem to see it as much here in the U.S. Maybe that's because we live in this kind of disenchanted culture. Not exactly sure why it is. But yes, demonization still happens today. And then this also might bring up the question for you about whether or not believers, Christians, can be demonized. If if believers, if Christians can be indwelt by demons who overtake our personality and exercise some measure of control over us. And to this, we must give a very clear and definitive, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Believers cannot be demonized. If you are a Christian, you are filled with the presence of the Almighty Holy Spirit. And He who is greater or he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you, and he's not interested in sharing you. He will not share you. But that doesn't mean that Satan and demons cannot attack us. Satan and demons can attack us as 
believers. We've seen this in Mark's gospel, that Satan can tempt us. Satan came to Jesus when he was fasting in the wilderness, and he sought to tempt Jesus and direct him off the course that the Father had set for him. Satan can tempt us. He's a tempter. And he will tempt you when you are vulnerable. He will tempt you by making sin look attractive. He will will seek to take you captive by deceiving you and tempting you. He'll 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 seek to take you captive by deceiving you into wrong beliefs and false doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.1 shows us that demons spread false doctrine. 1 John 4.1-4 shows us that Satan inspires false teachers to teach false doctrine. And so even though we cannot be demonized as Christians, we do need to be alert to satanic and demonic activity in the world. We need to be alert because we we don't want to be ignorant of our satanic and demonic foes. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, I don't want you to be outwitted by Satan. I don't want you to be ignorant of his designs. He will seek to take you captive, however and wherever he can. And not only this, but I want you to be, as Peter tells us, (coughs) excuse me, Peter tells us to be in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, that we ought to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We don't want to be left vulnerable to satanic or demonic attack or influence because Satan is, is powerful, he's deceptive, he's very skillful, and he wants to take you captive however he can. But then even more importantly, I don't want you to be afraid of him Because while Satan and demons are indeed powerful foes and utterly against us, the good news is that we have next a delivering conqueror. Look at verse 6 here. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now the first thing the, the demon leads this man to do when he sees Jesus from afar is come and kneel before him. And this is not an act of worship, this is an act of submission which is awesome. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So you see here this this continuing development and the contrast between the power of the demonic versus the power of Jesus. Remember how no chains could bind this demonized man, and no locals could overcome this man because of his demonic supernatural strength. And yet, here, the demon is immediately overcome by Jesus' power and authority so that this man can't help but bow down before Jesus and beg for mercy. He calls him the Son of the Most High God. This is getting at the reality (coughs) excuse me, this is getting at the reality that God is higher, that he has more authority, that he has more power than anyone or anything. He's most high. There's no one higher. Psalm 97.9 says, you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. No one Nothing is higher than God. There's no one more exalted than Him. No one has more power than Him. No one has higher authority than Him. 
And if Jesus is God's son, what does that mean about him? It means that he is God most high. If I'm a human being and I have a son, what does that mean about my son? It means that he is a human being and he has all of the attributes of being a human being. Likewise, if God is most high and he has a son, what does that mean about a son? It means that his son is also God most high. Mark is trying to show us something of, of the doctrine of the Trinity here. He's trying to show us that this Jesus who is called the Son of God is divine, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He's trying to show us that Jesus is deity come to us in flesh, that he is true God and true man. And so it's no wonder that merely by his personal presence, this demon is brought to its knees in submission. And actually, it would be more proper to say demons instead of demon. Pick it back up in verse 9. And so Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a group of Roman soldiers numbering up to potentially 6,000. That's not to say that this man had precisely 6,000 demons. <coughs> but it does seem that there were thousands of demons indwelling this man, as we see this number of pigs here that they're cast into, verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, admittedly, this is a very peculiar passage right? Because of that, it's, it's very easy to kind of get sidetracked by some of the peripheral questions and to miss the main point of what Mark is trying to show us here. And I don't want you to miss the main point. I don't want you to get distracted. The main point of this passage is the fact that Jesus is Lord of the spirits, that he is victor, he is conqueror, he is the one who has authority not just over illness, as we've already seen. Not just over the elements, as we saw last week. But he has authority over the demonic and over all spiritual evil in this world. They must bow down to him. Just like the wind in the sea obeyed him when he sent word. Notice here, the demons obey him when he sends word. What kind of power what kind of authority does one have to have to be able to command his enemies? And they do exactly as he commands. That's absolute power. That is a despotic kind of authority. Jesus is Lord. He has power and authority over everything, even evil itself. But then also consider what he does with his power and authority. He doesn't oppress like the demons. He sets people free from oppression. He doesn't seek to destroy the dignity of this image bearer. He restores it. Jesus here mercifully crossed the sea to seek out this man. 
and to use his power and authority to restore this man to life and to deliver him from the degradations and destruction of demonic influence. He uses his power to deliver this man. And now that brings us to the pigs. All right. I know it's strange. The Bible can be a strange book sometimes. And the demons wanting to go into the pigs and the demons going into the pigs and the pigs running off a cliff and drowning, it's strange. Apparently, it seems, demons are territorial, right? They, they, don't like, they don't want to be sent out of the country. They don't want to be sent out of this region here. There's biblical warrant elsewhere as well for demonic territory being a reality. And then also, apparently, demons prefer to inhabit something, right? They, they, they don't want to be kind of roaming about, But that brings up the question, why does Jesus do this? Why does he allow it? Why does he allow the demons to stay in the region and to inhabit something here? I think William Lane provides a a kind of plausible explanation for this. He says that Jesus recognized that the time of the ultimate vanquishment of the demons had not yet come. It wasn't time for that yet. His encounter and triumph here over the demonic does not put an end yet to Satan's power, but it is the pledge and the symbol of that definitive triumph, but the time when that triumph will be fully realized is yet deferred. It must await the appointment of God. Therefore, Jesus allows the demons to continue their destructive work, but not upon a man. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that casting the demons into the pigs was a way of triumphing over them in this particular instance, but in a way that recognized that the time for their ultimate defeat had not yet come, yet in these acts we find something of a pledge or a symbol of a coming victory yet to be realized. This text, this story, is something of a, it's a preview of a coming attraction, if you will of what Jesus has come to do for us. Here, Jesus is giving us a movie trailer of what was going to happen to Satan and demons through the arrival of his kingdom, an arrival that would come through Christ's victorious death and resurrection for us. This is probably an aspect of the work of Christ that we don't talk enough about, actually. Normally, Christians and our particular tribe of Christianity, when we talk about the work of Christ and what he's come to do, we highly emphasize what uh, is, is called the penal substitution of Christ. You may have heard of that, you may have not, but if you've been around Christianity for any amount of time uh, in this particular kind of tradition, you know what it is, whether you know it or not. Penal substitution. It's a shorthand way of saying that Christ died as our substitute on the cross, taking the penalty that we deserve because of our sin. We've sinned. We've committed cosmic treason against God. We've earned God's righteous judgment. Christ took it for us on the cross in our place. That's penal substitution. It's good news. We rightly emphasize it. But another aspect of the work of Christ that we don't talk as much about, that actually many Christians throughout church history have highly emphasized, is what we call Christus Victor. Christus Victor. And you'll hear Christians debate 
between these, uh, like which one is actually true, which one is the right view of what Jesus accomplished for us. The Bible teaches them both, and so we have to believe both. We don't need to reconcile friends here. And you can probably tell by the name, it's a shorthand way of talking about Christ's victory. This aspect of the work of Christ speaks to the fact that Christ has triumphed over Satan and his demonic army and his life and death and resurrection. And one day, that that victory will be fully executed when he returns in his final judgment and he returns to judge and cast Satan and his demonic army into the lake of fire wherein they will suffer everlasting torment. Again, there's a very real war going on in the cosmos, a war which ever since Genesis 3, we human beings have been taken as captives, but as God promised there in Genesis 3.15, just after Satan deceived our first parents and took us captive, there God promised that he would send a deliverer, and that deliverer, he says, would triumph over our satanic enemy. He would come and he would be born of a woman and when this deliverer comes, he will crush the head of that nasty snake, gaining ultimate and final victory over him, liberating his people from their captivity to Satan and sin and death and hell. 1 John 3.8 tells us that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he has done it. Satan's dominion over the people of God has ended. Our minds were, 2 Corinthians 4.4, previously blinded by Satan, but Christ has come and opened our eyes. We were previously, Ephesians 2.1-2, dead in sin and under the influence of Satan, but God has made us alive in Christ and released us from Satan's captivity to this this powerful enemy. We were once enslaved by sin, by, by pornography, by lust, by addiction, by anger, by idolatry, by greed, by racism, by whatever, but Christ has broken the chains and the shackles that Satan bound us with in his victorious work. Our demonic and satanic foes can seek to harm us, but they cannot finally or fully thwart God's saving purpose for us. Because Christ has triumphed over him. The devil, as Martin Luther used to say, is God's devil. Right? He is a dog with sharp fangs and a big bark. He's dangerous, yes. But he's chained and leashed by our sovereign Savior and our delivering conqueror. The bloody cross and the empty tomb of Christ guarantee That it's true. And what does this all mean except that you, Christian, have been set free from slavery to sin and the devil and fear of death. Prior to your conversion, you were satanically influenced and inhibited. You were demonically dominated and deceived. But in Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are freed and restored and healed. You have been put back into your right mind, so to speak, like this man here. What we see here in this man and in his deliverance is a snapshot of our salvation and deliverance in Christ. Because of this, lastly, we receive a declarative commission. Not everyone celebrated this man's deliverance and transformation. And when the crowds heard about what had happened, they, they flocked to the side of the event and 
They seemed to be more upset about the pigs than they were happy about the man's deliverance. And so, and when they arrived, they actually began to ask Jesus to, to leave the region. They rejected Jesus. Perhaps there are, are some of you here this morning that are rejecting Jesus in the same way. Perhaps you don't believe in the existence of the devil or demons. Perhaps you, you don't believe in the existence of the Most High God. But I want to appeal to you this morning, friend. Jesus is God's Son. And He has come to rescue us and redeem us from the oppression of sin and Satan and death. And if you reject Him, one day He will judge you. Satan and demons are not the only ones who will be judged when Jesus returns All will be judged, and if you do not repent and put your trust in Christ, your eternal fate will be the same as that of the devil and his demons. But that's not the only response we see here. Verse 18 tells us that as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been uh, uh, possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So notice that the man wants to be with Jesus. Which we've seen in Mark as a kind of synonym for discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is, is being with Jesus, following Jesus, learning from Him, learning to do life from Him, listening to Him. But instead of allowing this man to follow, Jesus actually sends him on an evangelistic assignment. Verse 19 tells us, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus tells him to go home. And to be a witness to his own about all that Jesus had done for him. And so this man does. He he goes home and into the Decapolis. And and he began to proclaim to all who would listen about all that Jesus had done for him. And people heard they were amazed. Now to be frank, I was a bit surprised by this when I first read it. You know, I, I was thinking, Jesus, this man doesn't know anything. I mean, he doesn't have any theological training. He hasn't heard enough of your teaching. He hasn't had any evangelism classes. What is he going to say? He's probably going to say the wrong thing. What if he leads people astray? Just imagine if this man walked into our gathering this morning. He started trying to tell everyone about Jesus here. We might sit him down and say, hey, I just want to sit down, talk with you, make sure that you know what you're talking about here. Tell me, what, what do you know about penal substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor? And he'd probably say, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Never heard of that before. And you say, okay, well, what about justification through faith alone? Have you ever read Galatians or Romans? And he'd go, I, you're speaking another language here, pal. And you say, okay, all right, yikes, this is not going well. Um, What about inerrancy? Tell me, what do you know about the inerrancy of the Scriptures? Unpack that for me. And he'd say, listen, man, I I don't know what you're trying to get at with all of your questions here. All I know is that I met a man named Jesus. And I was as good as dead, but he made me alive. I was broken, but he healed me. I was on the path to destruction, but he rescued me. I was enslaved by Satan, but he redeemed me. I was diminished, degraded, decimated, but he delivered me and restored my dignity. And I just want others to know about this Jesus so that they can meet him too. 
Friends, we have likewise been commissioned with a testimony to declare. Jesus has set us free from fear and from sin and from death and from hell and from Satan and his blinding, binding, deceiving power. Doesn't that just make you want to tell somebody? And, and, and maybe, you know, you feel like you're not doctrinally savvy enough. Maybe you feel like you don't have all of the apologetic questions figured out. Maybe you don't feel like you know the ins and outs of all the atonement theory. But if you've been delivered by Jesus, you have a story to tell. And if you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough to tell someone else about it. And parents, let me just tell you this. Notice, it starts at home. Notice that Jesus tells the man to start at home. Parents, you have a wonderful opportunity and position to utterly saturate your house with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you eat dinner with your family at night, you have gospel opportunities. When your child sins and it's brought to your attention, you have a gospel opportunity. When your child comes to you and you hear those pitter-patter footsteps coming down the hall in the middle of the night, and your child is scared. You have a gospel opportunity. You have the opportunity to tell your your child about Jesus' victory, his victory over sin, his victory over fear, his victory over death, his victory over Satan. But then it doesn't end at home. Notice this man began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He goes to his neighbors, he goes to his friends, he goes to those who were ticked off about the pigs probably. And he tells them how much Jesus had done for him. I love how personal that is. How much Jesus had done for him. Isn't that sweet? Friends, consider how much Jesus has done for you. This is personal. How much he has done for you. And, and this, is, this is, you know far more about it than this man does here at this moment. You know about Christ's betrayal. You know about his flogging. You know about his crucifixion, about the nails, about the crown of thorns, about the, 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 the suffering, the asphyxiation, the dying. You know about the resurrection. Consider what he has done for you personally. He did that for you. You know how he is God who has authority over evil. But even more, how he has come to deliver you from the oppression of that evil. To set you in your right mind. To restore you. To heal you. To give you eternal life. We don't need to be afraid. Go and tell the world how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. I'm out of time. I'm over time. We need to pray. Father, we give you thanks for what this text reveals to us about our mighty, divine, delivering conqueror. We pray that you would open our eyes to see him more clearly, more truly, and to appreciate more fully what he has done for us in his work. Lord, and and help us to, to celebrate that and to grow in clarity of that as we celebrate the supper here 
now. As we behold the bread and the wine, help our eyes to behold Christ and to discern who He is and what He's done for us as we behold it. Lord, we need You. Open our eyes, soften our hearts, and enliven our bodies, our hands, our legs to go forward in this declarative commission that You've given us in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.